Good morning. We are in Romans chapter 8. It's a section of God's Word we'll be looking at this morning, looking at the final verses, verses 31 through 39. So please open your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there are blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. If you flip that Bible to page 944, that'll bring you to the section you need to be in. This is a part two, so we started looking at these verses last week. So I'll do a little bit of review if you weren't here to catch you up, or even if you were to give you some reminders of what we talked about. Benjamin Franklin said there were only two things certain in this life. Do you remember? You have to remember what they were? Death and taxes, death and taxes. Let me tell you something that's more certain even than that, and that is the future glory of every child of God, the future glory of every child of God. I mean, you, hey, listen, the rapture comes, we won't face death, we won't face death, and some of you don't pay your taxes, so that's not certain for all of you. <laughs> I'm not talking about you guys, I'm just saying, you know, you in general, you know other people who don't abide by the laws. Anyway, but yeah, that's, that's certain, beloved, that's certain, and that's what we've been looking at this morning, and that's what we're going to continue to look at. Every true child of God will reach their ultimate destiny. You ready? Let's begin with the Word of God, and we're going to start reading actually in verse 28 of chapter 8, just like we did last week, so that we can get the context and the flow of Paul's discussion here. Verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes, and we know... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Isn't that good news, guys? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, that is his Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, that was the best part of the sermon, beloved. That was it right there. That was it. But let's look at these verses together. Following Paul's promise 
in verse 28 that all things, and that's what it is, a promise, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his, God's purpose. Following that, Paul, in verses 29 and 30, proceeds to spell out for us God's saving purpose, which, as we have already covered, is to bring all those he foreknew to glory, which means, as I've already said, every true child of God or every Christian will ultimately be all that God has chosen them to be, which is entirely conformed to the image or likeness of his dear son, Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous and resurrected Lord. That's whose image we will be conformed to, whose likeness we will be. And God has predetermined this blessed destiny for all those that he foreknew in order that Christ might be the firstborn or the preeminent one. You remember this? The preeminent one among them. Or so that Christ would forever stand supreme among those he died to redeem. And as the exalted one, be adored, worshipped, and praised for all eternity by a glorified humanity that will forever bear his likeness. That's beautiful, beloved. That's beautiful. And that's just some review. And then in verses 31 through 39, Paul goes on to reflect on God's incredible plan of salvation, and he helps us to understand just how truly secure it is. And he does that by asking several rhetorical questions. And we went over two of them last week. And so this morning, you'll notice in your outline, it simply says this, we will continue now to focus on the rhetorical questions in this section here of God's word so that we might not have any doubts concerning the invincibility of the believer's salvation. The invincibility of the believer's salvation. So last Sunday, and this is review again, last Sunday we looked at Paul's rhetorical question, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who are the us? Believers, believers, born-again Christians. And the point Paul is making or driving home is this. Since it is God, since he is the one who has foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, and will ultimately glorify us, since he is the one who is doing all those things and has done those things, then God is certainly for us. Certainly he's for us. He is on our side. And since he is, then obviously no one could successfully come against us and somehow overthrow or invalidate our salvation or prevent us from reaching our God-determined destiny. For no one, not even Satan, is any match for Almighty God. That's just the first point. That's just the first rhetorical question, okay? Then the second rhetorical question we covered last week is found in verse 32, and it's this. You can see it's there in the text. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all 
things. And remember, I said of both these verses, they're regularly taken out of their context and used to mean something that they were never intended to mean. And here what we have in verse 32 is an argument from the greater to the lesser, meaning this, if God did the greater or harder thing for us, of sending his own son, his own beloved son to the cross to suffer and die by bearing the wrath of God that we deserved, that's the greater thing then we certainly have every reason to believe that he will do that which by comparison is the lesser thing. And that is, he will give us all things or anything else that is necessary or leads to our ultimate sanctification or to our eternal glory. That's, beloved, that's, that's the context not, you know, all things being bigger houses and nicer cars, which is what some have tried to use this verse to mean. So, but listen, beloved, it would be rather ridiculous then to think that God would subject his son, listen, to such a horrifying death for the salvation of those he foreknew, but not also graciously give them all things like the power of, and faith for them to persevere in Christ to the end and thereby sustain them and keep them from walking away from Christ or abandoning their faith altogether and consequently then invalidating their salvation, a salvation that cost God his own dear son. That's the idea. Let me try to illustrate it for you. I know this was last week's point, but the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to talk to you about it. If you lived on a planet far, far away, just pretend with me for a second, and you, for whatever reason, needed to get off of that planet because the planet was going to undergo some type of changes that would make it impossible to live there. In other words, if you stayed there, you would be destroyed, okay? But the only way, and so you need to now, you're on that planet Doom is coming, and the only way to be saved is to get to my planet. My planet, you'll be safe. With me so far? But the only way for you to get to my planet is via an incredibly expensive spaceship. An incredibly expensive spaceship. So expensive that it would require me to, now not me personally, because I don't, you'll see in a second, to cash in my large Retirement account, see, that's what I mean. This is, it's a fantasy, okay? <laughs> to cash in my large retirement account that I have been making great sacrifices to build over the last 40 years. Would I, would I, after giving up so much personally to purchase that spaceship to save you, would I not also make sure that with that spaceship, you were also supplied with a sufficient amount of fuel to get you all the way to my planet and also food and water to sustain you for your voyage so that you don't starve to death before you reach your salvation. Huh? Right? 
God's spaceship was his son. And this is where some people get confused. Because they may know of someone who identified as a Christian. You may know of someone who has identified as a Christian. Or said they were a Christian. But then at some point in their life, that person did uh, walk away from Christ or Christianity. And they, they never came back. And so some people conclude then, based on that, that people can lose their salvation. That their salvation is not entirely secure. Okay? But listen to me. Based on everything that the Word of God says concerning our salvation in Christ, based on everything that it says, I would then have to conclude that that person I was just talking about who walked away, I would have to conclude that they were never truly saved in the first place. That's the conclusion you have to draw. The Apostle John, listen, the Apostle John, speaking of those who at one time were at least outwardly apart, very much apart of the Christian community and claimed to be followers of Christ, but then left, abandoned the faith, apostatized, okay? Went after another Christ, not a true one. This is what the Apostle John says of them. Now, remember, they were once part of, quote, the Christian. They were, at least externally, they were a part of the Christian community. They professed faith in Christ. Here's what John says of those who then left and walked away from true Christianity. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Remember, we went through this whole book, this letter. They went out. They, he's speaking of these people who had left. They went out from us, us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, the Christian community, the true Christian community, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John doesn't say that they lost their salvation. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says they're leaving the faith prove they were never truly one of us in the first place. They were never Christians in the first place. Why would he say that? Because he knows that God holds on to all those he saves. He sustains them. He causes them to persevere. He gives them all things necessary. If he gave his son... Do you not think he'd give us anything else we needed for our salvation? So, he holds on. Now listen, the road to glory, right? It can get a little bumpy at times. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? Just imagine that spaceship ride. It can get a little scary. In fact, uh, let's just go back to the road illustration. You might even get a flat tire on that road occasionally. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of have, a, have even a season of pause. But God is the best AAA in the business, man. He will be there. He'll get your tire fixed. He'll figure it out one way or another. He'll get you back on the road to glory. That's our God. That's the God of our salvation. We are entirely safe. Entirely safe. The true believer is entirely safe in God's hands. Now let's look back to the third rhetorical question noted in your outline. 
and this is where we left off last week, and it's found in verse 33, and it just gets better. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? This question and the one that, is to, that follows it or is a follow-up to it in verse 34, you can just let your eyes glance down, who is to condemn? Both these questions are asked to drive home the point that everyone who has been saved by God and placed by him on the road to glory cannot possibly, listen, cannot possibly have any charge or accusation brought against them that would successfully stick and take them off of that road or effectively undo their salvation or place them back under and sentence them to the eternal wrath of God and therefore overcome their salvation and prevent them from ever being glorified. This is so awesome, beloved. Listen, look back at the text with me. Chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God. It is who? God. Who what? Justifies. In verses 29 and 30, remember the context. We learn that all those God foreknew, all those he selected or chose to be his before the foundation of the world. All the elect of God are all those that he calls or summons to himself through the gospel, through the gospel. And when they repent and respond in faith to the gospel, what does God do? He justifies them. He justifies them, which means that he forgives them of all of their sins, past, present, and future, and gives them a righteous status or standing before him. They didn't have one. They couldn't earn one. God graciously gives it to them. So listen. The idea here in verse 33 isn't that accusations or charges can't be made against the Christian or God's elect because they never do anything wrong. It's it's obviously not that like, hey, who can bring any charge against us? I mean, come on. That's not, right? No, that's, that's not the idea because we are not, let me say it this way, we are far from perfect people. Yes or no? Yes or no? Christians still sin, right? Yes, last time I checked. I still sin. We still fail. Hopefully we're failing less, but we still fail to to obey our great God. The one we sang to this morning, the one we worship and delight in, we still fail to obey him, right? And according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is busy, busy bringing charges against Christians or accusing them day and night before God. He's busy. That should tell you something. But the idea is this. The idea is this. 
Since God is the one who justifies them, the believer, then how can any charge, any charge against the believer possibly stand? That's the point. They can't. They can't. In God's divine court, every accusation against the believer must be thrown out. Dismissed. Because against, or because God, because God is the one who justifies them. In and through Christ, or God's own Son, that he did not spare, but gave up for us all, the believer stands entirely blameless, blameless, and righteous before God. There is no condemnation for those who are in, finish it, Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Beloved, listen, I don't, you know, we all deal with um, stuff. Family stuff, work stuff. Life is, is, uh, is not a bowl of cherries, certainly. Nor is the Christian life. If you think, you know, becoming a Christian, then it all gets better. That's not, that's not exactly how it works. But I'll tell you, the Christian has hope upon hope upon hope. The Christian, no matter what, is truly blessed. Truly blessed. Blameless. Blameless. Before God, because of Christ. And that brings me to verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Paul says. Christ Jesus, listen. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. For us. Listen. Who can possibly condemn the believer? No one, beloved. No one. This is why our salvation is so secure. No one. Not going to be someone who sneaks out the last minute. Hey, I got one that can uh, bring them down. Or Satan goes, hey, you know, what about this, God? No one. Why? Well, it is because of and only, only because of Christ. Christ, the one who, listen, died for us. He died for us. And in dying, he bore, he fully bore our guilt and shame. And he took upon himself our condemnation and secured once and for all our justification. And not only did he die, beloved, not only did he die, but he was also raised to life. And now he sits at the right hand of God. You know what that means? It means he has been elevated to the place of ultimate power and authority, this one. There is no higher authority than Christ. And it is the risen and exalted Christ, my dear friends, who is interceding for us. Or that is to say, living to ensure that the justifying verdict for which he died is forever applied to us, the very chosen of God. Who is to condemn? <laughs> huh? 
It's a rhetorical question. Who is to condemn? No one. For the interceding ministry of the risen and exalted Christ who died for us makes it absolutely impossible for the believer to ever be condemned. That should put a smile on your face, my friends. Come on. And therefore, it's impossible that we could forfeit the glory God has predestined us for. It's impossible. That's the point Paul is making. Our salvation is invincible, beloved. Invincible. It cannot be overcome because it is God's doing from start to finish. Our God didn't leave out any details. Oops, forgot about that one. No loopholes here. It's ironclad, our salvation. Finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Look at, look at verse 35. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? But here's the idea. Is there, is there anyone or, or anything or any conceivable circumstance that could possibly separate us from the love of Christ or come between us and the love of our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who died for us, was risen, is now at the right hand of God, and is interceding for us? Is there? No, the implied answer is absolutely not. And Paul goes on to mention seven things here, seven things that were simply representative of the various distresses and difficulties that, were, that the people of God faced. Things that Paul, by the way, experienced himself, himself as a follower of Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine not having enough food, nakedness, not having clothing, danger, all of those things. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 22 through 27, and chapter 12, verse 10. This is not theoretical for Paul. This is real life. This has been his experience, right? He's faced those things. But according to Paul, even those things are quite incapable of separating Christians from the love of Christ or disrupting their relationship with the love of Christ. Incapable, impossible. One writer says this, I don't think, nor certainly the church at Rome who received this letter could know how short a time would elapse before they would stand in need of this comforting truth. Paul himself was eventually killed by a sword or an axe that chopped his head off. His readers in Rome were soon involved, Christian readers, in a bloodbath. So now we're just talking about history here, Christian history, that would soak the sands of the Roman amphitheater as Christians were killed in a number of ways. And some of the Caesars, the guy in charge, the people who were in charge, even used them to light their parties in the garden, poured oil over them, and made them human torches. It didn't matter what came. It didn't matter the extremity to which the suffering was taken. There was nothing that could separate them. Whether they were mauled by wild beasts, 
whether they were soaked in tar and burned like torches, whatever it was, they were safe. They were safe in the love of Christ. I mean, they got to hear that, man, because I can imagine people saying, oh, yeah, the Lord loves you. Then why is he allowing these things to happen? Oh, yeah, you bet he loves me. And none of these things, not a single one of them, can separate me from that love. Then he says in verse 36, listen, because Paul always, especially for the early church, this is so weird to us because we don't suffer like this, my friends. We don't. Maybe one day, maybe soon, I don't know. But right now, the church in America doesn't know this kind of suffering. The church in other parts of the world does know this kind of suffering. They do. But he says he always wants to remind them that suffering is is not unusual for the Christian. Don't think that's weird. So again, here he says in verse 36, he quotes now the Old Testament, uh, specifically Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, verse 36, for your sake, God's, we are the people of God being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, so this is just the expression of the nation of Israel at a time where, like all times, they were under attack. And he does this so he reminds his readers, as I said, that the troublings or sufferings that they had or would, right, experience in this life, they're nothing new. Nothing new for the people of God. History has proven that this hostile world, listen, has valued the lives of God's people as nothing more than animals to be butchered. That's the point. Or as no better than a sheep that are marked for slaughter. That's the reality, my friends. We live in a, uh, you know, so-called society of tolerance, right? Except most people don't want to tolerate Christianity, but Well, they'll tolerate everything else. But for the time being, there is that kind of cover. You remove that cover, you watch. Because in other countries, that cover is not there. They seek out Christians for the purpose of doing them harm. And that was true in the first century church, has been true throughout church history. America is an exception, but I don't know for how long. Now look at verse 37, which refers back to verse 35. Answering his question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists off those things, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sorrow. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, beloved, I don't want to take the time, but here's just another passage that has regularly been taken out of its context. Have you ever heard this? I mean, I've heard this in so many settings. I mean, and it has not, we are more than conquerors! You know, like at a football game or something. This, this ha- it has nothing to do with that. Do you see that now? This is why it's so important to read these things in their context, not rip them out and pull out one. Not, here's what Paul's saying, not only is it impossible for tribulation, this is real, this is Christian persecution, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword. Not only is it impossible for those things or anything like it to disrupt our relationship with the love of Christ, but through Christ, 
We are actually more than conquerors in all these things. We not only are empowered by God, because we don't have it. We don't have the power to endure these things. God must empower us to endure them. We are not only empowered by God to endure them, but Paul says we triumph over them. We triumph over them. We come out of them as victors instead of victims. You with me? You with me? The world might think we're just a bunch of cheap victims open to slaughter. No. We are victors because of Christ. And he will prove that to be the case. And as we've discussed before, the difficult things here that Paul lists off in verse 35, those are certainly part of the all things of verse 28 that God uses to contribute to the believer's ultimate sanctification or to conform them to the image or likeness of Jesus Christ. So through Christ and his loving hold on us, beloved, we are winning. We are winning. we got to believe this by faith because sometimes we might get confused and think we're not winning. We are winning. The world says we're not winning. We are winning a most glorious victory, a victory, my friends, that has already been won for us through the cross. Our salvation cannot cannot be defeated. It cannot. And Christian, if there is any doubt about how utterly safe, how entirely safe you are in the hands of God, or any thought that you could somehow do something to lose or to surrender your salvation, you know, maybe this time, maybe this one was bad enough. Then you need to meditate on these last two verses. You need to meditate on these last two verses. They are the climax, the climax of chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says. And I'm going to just do some commentary as we go, okay? Commenting on what some of this means, just to help you through it. Paul says at the end of all this, for I am sure. I have a confidence and I continue to believe these things. I am absolutely sure. I continue to know this is true, that neither death nor life, so what is that? That means no state of being that we can be in, no state of existence, whether it be life or death, neither one of those, okay? Just follow me. Neither one, no state of existence, nor angels, nor rulers. Well, rulers here, like angels, is just most likely a reference to the spirit world or realm. And rulers might be a reference to evil spiritual powers, or even demons. Paul uses the word that way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. So, neither anything, or anyone, or any power in the spirit realm. No state of being, or existence, no one in the spirit realm. Nor things present, nor things to come, okay? Nothing that is happening today, or in the present, nor anything that might happen tomorrow or in the future. Nothing. Nor powers. That's, when, that's by itself. There's questions about what exactly that means. It might refer to some kind of spiritual 
forces, some kind of spiritual forces. 39, nor height, nor depth, all right? Nothing above us or underneath us, nothing in heaven or on earth, or nothing from one end of the universe to the other. (laughs) Nor, Paul says, anything else in all creation. That's just in case you might think of something else. It is. He just went... Let me read that again. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where it is. That's where you find it. That's where it's located. One writer, speaking of nor anything else in all creation, he makes this comment. He says, if there are other possibilities, Paul is sure they are all equally impotent, powerless. For he declares that there is nothing in all creation that can drive a wedge between the love of the Savior and his redeemed people. After all, the creation itself is the handiwork of his handiwork, and cannot thwart the will of the Creator. Don't ever forget that, beloved. Who created this thing? God. God. And so nothing can thwart His will. Beloved, here's the bottom line of all this. Our salvation, our salvation, which includes our ultimate sanctification. It's another way of saying glory. Glory. That state of glory where we are fully and completely perfected both soul and body. That is absolutely invincible. It is incapable of being overcome or defeated because nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. A love that began in eternity past. Get your mind around that. That's a hard one. I can't. And was clearly demonstrated to us in history, that love, by the sending of his own son to die for us. It is a redeeming love, a redeeming love that we have become the blessed and permanent recipients of through our saving relationship an unbreakable union with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. Let me close with, uh, with some words, a situation here in John, Gospel of John, some words of Christ, our loving Redeemer, Redeemer, the one whom we cannot be separated from. It says in uh, verse 22 of John chapter 10, just listen. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. 
and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, they tell you, I am the Christ. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Meditate on that, beloved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths, the rich truths we find in it. Father, if it was up to me to make it all the way to heaven, if, if there was something I could do to, to mess things up, I would do it. I wouldn't make it. I couldn't make it, Father. There's no way. And you knew that, and I know that. So your redemption, Father, is a work of your almighty, sovereign, all-wise gracious, merciful, loving hands. You save, and you save to the uttermost. And Father, in that I can rest. I can rest. You foreknew me, and every other brother and sister in Christ that sits here in this room, you foreknew us. Before time even began, you chose us for this great salvation according to your own purposes and your sovereign will. Through your grace and mercy, you elected us unto this great salvation and you predestined us. You determined beforehand who we would ultimately be, image bearers of the one and only Jesus Christ, your beloved Son and our Lord and great Redeemer. Father, in time to make this all take place, you called us to yourself. You summoned us. You removed the scale from our eyes. You unplugged our ears. We saw the light because of you. We repented. We put our faith in that one whom you sent to die. And when that happened, because of that one who died, you were able to justify us. Oh, forever right. We were made with you. Forever right. No condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiven, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Given robes. Of righteousness that we bear because of your grace. 
But Father, you're not done yet. Glory is a coming. And Father, on that road, you are already working through the power of that, the Holy Spirit, beautiful Spirit that you graciously give to each and every one of us who are your adopted children. And, and He, thank you, Spirit, you, Holy Spirit, are working in and through us, and you're already beginning that great work of transforming these us, messed up us, into something really beautiful, into the image of Jesus Christ. And Father, you'll take us all the way. The road, as I said, is bumpy and difficult at times. Sometimes we maybe even wonder if we're did we get off somewhere? Wrong exit or something, I don't know. But Lord, you're so faithful. You do whatever it takes. You use the people of God. You use the word, your great and holy word. You use the spirit who indwells us. You use circumstances. You use difficult things. You even discipline us, if we are your children, to bring us back, to get us back on the path, moving us ever closer to that glory you have destined us for. <laughs> wow. Whatever happens in this life, so what? Our destiny is set. What can they do to us? What could happen to us? Nothing can undo our salvation and it has the greatest blessing any human being could possibly have. Father, for all of us who are yours, through your grace and your mercy, may we soak up the wonders of Romans chapter 8. May we soak it up. May it bring us great joy and peace and comfort. And knowing our end, may we strive towards holiness because that is our destiny. Father, for all those who don't know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work even now. Draw those who are lost, Father, by your grace and your mercy. Draw them now, even now, to yourself. That they too might be saved. That they too might call upon your name in faith. That they too might put their trust, their hope, their confidence in him, Christ Jesus the Lord, in his salvation, in his sacrifice on the cross, in his righteousness. May they do that even now, that they might be justified and set by your sovereign and steady hand on the road to glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.